Well, we've been traveling through the book of Daniel uh, for several weeks now. Uh, we have seen Daniel uh, and his friends be uh, plucked away from their home in Israel and uh, exiled to a place called Babylon. Uh, we have seen them stand against uh, a, a tide of uh, a people who do not want to love God, serve God, or honor Him, uh, yet Daniel uh, and his companions stand against uh, that, that tide and stand against that government structure. We, we have seen the fiery furnace. Uh, we have seen uh, King Nebuchadnezzar be transformed into a wild animal in order to uh, humble him. We, we have seen uh, uh, Belshazzar's uh, uh, great party and the writing on the wall. We've, we've seen uh, Daniel and his very scary sleepover with uh, the hungry lions. And uh, we, we've seen all of this. Uh, yet today, as we find ourselves in the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel has taken a very sharp turn. Uh, so if you know the book of Daniel well, you will know that the first uh, six chapters of the book are uh, a biography. What Daniel is doing is he is writing the story of his life. He is explaining to us, this is what has happened. This is what I've gone through. He is telling the story of how God has preserved him through uh, some very difficult times. And not only has he preserved him, but he's prospered him in a land that is not his own. So Daniel tells his story uh, in chapters 1 through 6. Now, in chapters 7 through 12, we find something very, very different. It is no longer biographical, but we have firmly landed in a type of literature uh, that is called apocalyptic. Okay, so we find ourselves in apocalyptic literature today. Now, uh, this is where your Sunday school teacher likely left off. Okay, so, so they told you about the fiery furnace, uh, they told you about the lion's den, uh, and then they closed the book of Daniel and slid the Bible far, far away. And, and this is where uh, many preachers would like to uh, get away from the book of Daniel uh, because they feel exactly like Daniel does. Just look at uh, verse 15. Daniel says this, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Well, I feel exactly the same way because I have to preach this. Okay? It is very alarming and I feel very um, anxious, but uh, it is my job, uh, it is my great uh, pleasure to um, explain this and apply it uh, and keep Jesus at the center. Amen? So, um, as you approach the Bible, there are two uh, main uh, mistakes that people make. Okay, so as you approach the Bible, I think the biggest mistake you can ever make when approaching the Bible is not believing that the Bible is the literal word of God. Okay? It is the literal authoritative word of God. If you come to the Bible not believing that it is the literal authoritative word of God, that is the biggest mistake you can make. Here is the second biggest mistake you can make. The second biggest mistake you can make when approaching the Bible is not understanding the type of literature and therefore not understanding the intent of the literature, okay? Now, in the Bible, there are different types of literature. You guys still with me? We got a lot of work to do before we get to the text, okay? Now, there are different types of literature in the Bible. What do I mean? Well, there are books of the law. Uh, there is historical narrative. There is poetry. 
Um, that there are uh, d- different types of apocalyptic literature. So as you get into the Bible, you need to understand what type of literature you are getting into because you do not treat all of those types of literature the same. Okay, let me explain. Now, uh, as you get into the poetic literature, if you're in the Psalms, for instance, uh, the Psalms will talk about the mighty right hand of the Lord. Okay, the, the right hand of the Lord came and did this and did that. Now, does that mean uh, for all left-handed people, nana nana boo boo? Okay, <laughs> God is right-handed, you are left-handed, therefore dumb. Okay, now, no, it doesn't mean that. It does not mean literally that God is right-handed. And we all know that and accept that. Why? Because it is poetic language, okay? But when we come to the book of Acts, which is historical narrative, very different type of literature, and it says that, uh, Luke Luke might say this, uh, we set sail from Troas, and then we landed in this town, and we went in here, and we talked to these people, and we planted this church in this town, that is historical narrative, and we take it literally. That means they literally got on a boat and sailed away to this town or that town. So we look at these two different types of literature and understand that one is poetic. It is not to be taken literally, wait, but it is still communicating truth, okay? So we must understand as we enter into this type of literature what it is. So let's ask the question this morning, what is apocalyptic literature. We're, we're, we're going to, again, work through this a little bit and, and try, to, try to get our sea legs because what's about to happen is we are going to set sail into uh, this apocalyptic literature. The waters are very, very deep, okay? Not only are the waters very, very deep, for many of us, the waters are uncharted, okay? So, so um, if I were to ask this question, how many of you have done extensive study and research in apocalyptic literature? Okay, no one. So uh, we have got to slow down a little bit and let's ask this question, what is apocalyptic literature? Here are seven helpful characteristics. Uh, I have taken them from a great theologian named David Helm. Okay, what is apocalyptic literature? How do we know what it is? Number one, it's known by its bold pronouncements that come in picture form. As you get into apocalyptic literature, you're going to see um, that it's going to be making these bold uh, pronouncements and, and it's describing a picture. So it's less storytelling. Now, that doesn't mean it's not telling a story, but as we get in this literature, we're gonna see that it's less storytelling and more describing what is being seen. So, so we heard in the reading of the word, Daniel said, I saw in the night vision. So he's telling you what he's seeing. Number two, it contains the presence of strange visions. Okay? It gets weird, right? That when, when, when stuff starts getting weird and you're reading it going, what? what's, ha- what's going on? I don't understand. Okay, listen, in chapter eight, there is a flying goat, okay? Uh, there is a unicorn flying goat in chapter eight in the book of Daniel. I'm not making that up. So, so as we get into this type of literature, know that things are going to be uh, a little strange and a little weird, okay? So it contains the presence of strange visions. Number three, it contains ghastly figures. 
as we read in apocalyptic literature, whether you're in the book of Daniel, whether you're in the book of Revelation, uh, there are these animals that are described. There's beasts that are described. Some are covered with eyeballs. Uh, some have like big nasty claws and teeth and, and they're, they're strange and ghastly, um, weird, uh, grotesque figures that, that are being described in apocalyptic literature. Number four, it forcefully uses dramatized symbolic imagery. Okay? It forcefully uses dra uh, dramatized symbolic imagery. So uh, today, uh, th there, there's going to be stomping and clawing and consuming and, and uh, all of this type of, of dramatized stuff that uh, we are going to see in this apocalyptic literature. Number five, apocalyptic literature abounds in the use of metaphor. So we're going to see a lot of symbolism. We're going to see a lot of metaphor. Now let's define metaphor because many of you slept through your English class. Metaphor. So what do, uh, metaphor is this, a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. Okay, so if I were to say, it is raining cats and dogs, do I mean that pets are falling from the sky? No, I do not mean that. That is a metaphor. I'm, I'm using symbolism to describe something that has happened. Now, again, let me reiterate, just because metaphor or symbolism is being used does not mean that it is not communicating truth. Okay, so you can use metaphor and you can use symbolism, and though it is not to be taken literally, it still can communicate truth. Here's what I mean. Is this a true statement? On Friday of this week, uh, here in Georgia, in most parts of Georgia, it was raining cats and dogs. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Now, again, do I literally mean pets were falling from the sky? No, I do not mean that, but you can use um, metaphor and still communicate truth. Are you guys still with me? Okay, um, so when the great theologian Miley Cyrus says, I came in like a wrecking ball, we know that she's not literally a wrecking ball. Again, that is a metaphor. It's a metaphor, and we can understand that it is still communicating truth, and we're going to see a lot of that uh, in apocalyptic literature, okay? Uh, so, number six, it has an abundance uh, of cataclysmic events that signal the end of the world. So yes, uh, these, th this type of literature is talking about the end of the world, the end times. Number seven, it has action that leads to final judgment and the ushering in of a new world, so today, uh, we're going to see books open, judgment is issued, uh, this type of literature is pointing in a certain direction, and that direction is forward. It is the future things to come. That is uh, apocalyptic literature, okay? So when you find yourself in a section of the Bible where some of those characteristics or all of those characteristics uh, are present, you have found yourself in apocalyptic literature. Now, that is how we know what it is. Now let's ask this question, how do we read it? How do we read apocalyptic literature and how do we understand it? Okay, so how do we read it? How do we understand it? Again, this can be very, very confusing. Number one, 
by understanding there are levels of theological certainty. Okay, any Bible student worth his salt knows that there are levels of theological certainty. Okay, now, uh, what are the behemoth and Leviathan in Job? I have no idea, okay? Uh, I have guesses, um, but listen, that to me is a very low level of theological certainty. Why do people live so long in the Old Testament? I have an idea. Uh, I even have some theological backing of why I have an opinion of why people live so long in the Old Testament, but that is a very low level of theological certainty, and I will not get into a big, massive debate with you about it. I'm going to say that's a very low level of theological certainty, and it's not really worth us fighting over. Now, on the other hand, there are very high degrees of theological certainty. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, come to live the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died in our place for our sins. By faith on him alone, you can be saved. Where are we at on that on the level of theological certainty? A 10, okay? Scale of one to 10, we're at a 10 on that one. We believe it, we know it. Okay, so, so you see within the Bible, there are different levels of theological certainty. As we enter into this very complex uh, and, and metaphorical, symbolic language of apocalyptic literature, we need to calm down a little bit and understand it's confusing and understand that a lot of these things are going to be very low on the level of theological certainty. Okay, so, so that's how we begin to read this type of literature. The truth is, we will not understand the fullness of these writings until Christ returns a second time. Okay, so, so as we read them, uh, I'm going to give you today what I believe the four beasts are. Okay? But we won't fully know until Jesus comes back. That's the truth of it. So as you get into the, re- into the book of Revelation and you're going, what are the seven seals and the seven trumpets? And there's this you know, beast with 10 horns and on each horn is a diadem. And you know, what's going on? Uh, you should study that and you should think about that and you should meditate on it because it's God's word. Um, and you will know it fully when Jesus comes back. If you remember in John chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples and, and he's saying things like this, um, I'm gonna go away for a while, uh, but then I'm gonna come back. And, and they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Um, and, and then he said things like this, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they, the disciples just couldn't get what he was talking about. They were confused about his meaning. And so Jesus says this to them in, in John chapter 16. He says, uh, guys, I'm speaking to you in figures of speech, but when I return you're gonna understand, okay? You'll get it fully when I come back. In the same way for us, Jesus is speaking to us, God is speaking to us in figures of speech and metaphors uh, as we find ourselves in this type of literature and he's saying to us, when I come back a second time, don't worry, it'll make sense, okay? So how do we uh, read it? How do we understand this? Number two, by understanding its intent is to give Christians hope. There's, there's so much debating and going back and forth and charts and graphs and timelines. And uh, listen, I give you full uh, encouragement and authority to be skeptical of all timelines, charts, and graphs, okay? 
So we get into this type of, of apocalyptic literature and there's so much back and forth and debate and, 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 and confusion when the intent of it is to give us hope. Listen, in the end, Jesus comes back. He sets up his forever kingdom. He invites all of, of the people who are his, his children to enjoy him forever in a place with no more sin, no more shame, no more crying, no more tears with him in his forever kingdom. That's the end of the book. That's encouraging. That gives us hope. So do we know all the bits and pieces and all the types and shadows that are in there? No. So we don't know exactly how things are going to play out, but we do know exactly what the end result is. So as we read this type of literature, we should not find ourselves in a sea of confusion. We should find ourselves in a sea of hope. Amen? Number three. By understanding, how do we understand this? By understanding that it was written to an original audience and is applicable to us today. It is written to an original audience, the original reader. So as Daniel is sitting down to write this stuff down, as God is showing him these visions, it is for those people for that day, okay? And it is for us today. There are two uh, camps of thought when it comes to this type of literature. Some people say, well, it was just for them in that day, so we need not try to worry about uh, what the beasts are and what the dragon is and, and all that kind of stuff. That was for them in that day. Those prophecies have already been fulfilled, so let's just forget about it. There's a whole other camp that says it's only for us today. So when you read about the, the locust uh, in Revelation with the teeth, we know that that's a helicopter, right? Anybody heard that? And, and, and you're saying, I think you're taking it a little too far, okay? So, so it was written for that audience and it's also applicable to us today, okay? So uh, we understand those two things. John has this to say in, uh, in his epistles. And if you're with us, we went through John's great epistles uh, John says this, you have heard that an antichrist is coming and many antichrists have already gone out. Again, what is that meaning? Well, it, it's meaning that there is an antichrist that is going to come in the end, the antichrist. So, so it's not just for future people, but he is also saying many antichrists have gone out in our day today, meaning it's applicable to us today. You guys are looking at me funny. Some people said, uh, okay, World War II, Hitler. I mean, this guy, obviously, the Christians of that day, some Christians of that day said, this guy is the Antichrist. This signals the end of the whole world. Okay, was that true? Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, Hitler was an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. So we have to understand that it is uh, essentially this type of literature sets up patterns for us today. We're going to see evil kingdoms be raised up and crushed and destroyed by God. Now, let me ask you a question. Are evil kingdoms still present in our world today? Is God still actively destroying and crushing evil kingdoms in our world today? Yes. Was he doing it back then? Were there evil kingdoms uh, like the Babylonian Empire, like the Medo-Persian Empire? Did Jesus ultimately crush and destroy those empires? Yes. So we see that it was written for that audience and is still applicable to us today, okay? Now, how do we understand this type of writing? This is my favorite one, number four. By understanding, it's all about Jesus. 
That's what the book of Daniel is about. That's what the book of Revelation is about. As you get in there and you're reading all this weird stuff going, what's going on? I feel lost and scared. I need a blanket and a hug. Know that that is about Jesus. That, that's what it's all about. Listen, uh, Luke 24, 27. Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died on the cross, he has resurrected from the grave, he is walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And here is what is said. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that includes the book of Daniel, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The center point of the whole Bible is Jesus' person and work. That's what the whole Bible's about. It's about Jesus. So as we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7 today, reading about four crazy beasts, at the end of the day, it's about Jesus. So we've got to keep the center point, the center point, keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. Does that make sense? So any conversation in anything you see on Christian television, in any book you read about the end times or about apocalyptic literature, if the main point is not Jesus, they missed it. So, with all that being said, let's get into our text, okay? I encourage you, have your Bible in front of you, get it out on your smartphone, uh, but, but you need to have your eyes on this text as we work our way through it, okay? Now, Daniel chapter 7, let's look at verses 1 through 3 to start. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by the night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Um, as this opens up, we are encountered again with Belshazzar. Uh, again, understand that at the end of chapter 6, the biographical portion of the book is over, and we actually have gone back in time to when Belshazzar was sitting on the throne. Okay, so the time has changed um, we are now back in time, uh, and Daniel is telling us about a vision that he saw back when Belshazzar was still on the throne. This is also very interesting because all the things that we've seen up until this point in the book of Daniel is other people having visions and dreams, and Daniel is the one who interprets it. Here, Daniel is the one who is having a dream, and it's actually going to be an angel who interprets the dream for Daniel. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by the night and behold the four winds of heaven or the, the power and the force of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, uh, the sea is a picture of chaos. Uh, the sea is a picture of rebellion against God. The sea is a picture of evil humanity. Uh, and so what's happening here is these four beasts are going to come out of the sea, uh, are going to come out of evil humanity. These beasts are obviously because they are coming out of the sea 
are in rebellion to God. All throughout uh, this chapter, as it describes these great beasts, there's an overwhelming feeling of terror uh, and fear. The symbol is they're coming from a place of rebellion against God, the sea, and these beasts are all apex predators. We have a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Okay, this this is a terrifying scene uh, that Daniel sees. This, this is not uh, the lion from the Lion King, okay? Uh, this, this is not uh, the, the characters from the animated film, The Jungle Book, okay? That's not, that's not these type of animals. These are, uh, this is like Cujo on steroids, okay? Y'all remember that movie, The Dog, The Big St. Bernard Guy? Okay, you guys didn't see that movie. Uh, this is uh, Pet Cemetery on steroids, okay? Did you guys see that? Any pe- okay, you guys didn't watch those kind of movies because you're Christians. Okay, now, what we're seeing here, again, is a very terrifying scene. Okay, so, so don't think cute lion, fluffy mane, here he comes. No, you, you gotta think um, grotesque, horrible, deformed, uh, scary, scary beasts. Okay, let's look at these beasts. Here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna take them one, two, three, four. We're gonna talk about what is described in the text. Then I am going to make a speculation about what the beasts are. I could be totally wrong. Lots of people disagree on this if you haven't figured that out by now, okay? So we're gonna say what the text says. I'm gonna make a speculation about what the beast is and then we're gonna move on. Is that good? Verse four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night vision and behold, four beasts, terrifying and dreadful, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I love this line. I considered the horns. (laughs) As he's seeing this this terrible thing come up, and and he's totally freaked out about it, and then it's got 10 horns, and he's, he's like so freaked out about the horns. Now he's just focusing in and trying to figure out what's up with these horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them Another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, what in the world is happening? Let's do this. I want to jump to verse 17 because it's going to give us a key to understanding what these beasts are. Now, poor Daniel, he didn't get this until later. Uh, We have the great blessing of the Bible. We know what's coming down the road. So let's jump to verse 17. Then we'll come right back. Look at verse 17. The vision is being interpreted to Daniel. Uh, An angel is speaking to him. The four great beasts are four kings. Okay. Okay. So these four beasts are pictures or symbols or metaphors for kings. Okay. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, okay? There, that is the key to understanding what these beasts are. 
So the question is that all the theologians and all the commentators and, and, and people alike ask, what kings are these beasts representing? And there are some clues or some keys that will help us figure out what kings these beasts are representing. I say again, I am speculating because all that it says is that they are kings. The text never tells us what kings they are, but we can make some speculations. Let's look at the first beast. The first beast was a lion, okay? It was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. Then something happens to it and the eagle's wings are plucked off uh, and then it is given the mind of a man. It is given human qualities. Now, it is my speculation, the speculation of other commentators and biblical theologians that are much smarter and probably way more handsome than I am, that this first beast is King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, why is that? Well, because Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar, is referred to as a lion. We saw in the book of Daniel that he grew hair like an eagle, right? He had claws like an eagle. We saw him be transformed into a wild beast, yet a mind of a man was given to him. Uh, so, so again, we're, we're seeing some direct correlation or some direct uh, similarities directly to King Nebuchadnezzar. So it is safe to assume that the first beast that Daniel sees is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is pictured in this grotesque beast. Now, the second one, Okay, so as we're now moving along in chronological order, um, who was here as we, who has, has been here all the way through the book of Daniel? You've been here as we've been studying this book. Okay, then you can answer this question. After Babylon goes away, what king or kingdom comes next? Yep, the Medo-Persians. Okay, so let's look at the second beast. It was like a bear and it had two sides or it was raised up on one side. Okay, so Medo-Persia, the two sides of this kingdom. Now, this bear is very interesting. He has ribs in his mouth. Uh, no, he did not come from Shane's. Um, he has ribs in his mouth because uh, he is coming from a previous kill and he is told to devour and eat more. Uh, we know the Medo-Persian empire was a very large empire and took over uh, many, many other kingdoms. Okay, so now the third beast. You guys still with me? Going cross-eyed and glazing over yet? No, you still with me? Third beast is like a leopard. It has four wings and four heads. Uh, that means it is very fierce and very fast. It can see in all four directions. You can't hide from it, okay? That, that is this fourth uh, leopard-like beast. Now, history would tell us that you have the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. After that, the biggest empire that pops up in history next is uh, the, the Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great. Now, was he very swift and fast? Yes, he, he essentially took over the known world in 12 years. After uh, Alexander the Great goes away, his kingdom is essentially divided into four sections with four leaders, four heads of this leopard, okay? Now, the fourth beast. The fourth beast, uh, I'm telling you, it was all over the map. I'm trying to figure out what this thing is. Uh, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. Uh, and again, the speculations are all over the map. This fourth beast was so terrifying and grotesque as we read it that it cannot be described in animalistic terms. 
All the other beasts get an animal prescribed to it, but this one gets no animal. It's just, it's not like the other ones, and it's really, really terrible. Anything that it doesn't eat, what does it do? It just stomps into nothingness. This is a very, very terrifying beast that Daniel sees. In addition, uh, not only is it a very terrifying beast, it has 10 horns, right? It just keeps getting even more and more strange and weird, okay? So what's the deal with the horns? Well, uh, in the Bible, horns represent power. Um, We have a saying, don't we? If you mess with the bull, you get the horns, right? So in, in the same way here, um, we, we don't have to, to do too much work to see that 10 horns are showing the power uh, of this beast. And the fact that it has 10 of them means they're very, very powerful. That, that's, that's what's happening here in this text. In addition, there's one horn that kind of pops up. It has eyes, meaning that it can see and perceive. It has a mouth, meaning that it's, it's smart, it's boastful, it, it's arrogant. Uh, so what beast does this, uh, what kingdom does this beast represent? Again, if we're looking at the succession of world powers, you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greek uh, empire, and then the biggest next uh, uh, empire on the scene would have been Rome. Okay, so that is my guess. That is my speculation. Uh, and from that point, we can move away, far, far away from my speculation and get back to the text. Now, what in the world does this have to do with me? Okay, now let's all take a big deep breath and let it out. We've got past all the beasts. We're done with that. We've described them. We've said what the text said. I've made some speculation. Let's ask a bigger and more important question. What in the world do these beasts have to do with me? Okay, so this guy a really long time ago saw a bunch of weird stuff. I mean, maybe he had some bad pizza the night before. Who knows? But why does this matter to me? How does it land squarely on us? I mean, is God really speaking to us today through this text? The answer is yes. The answer is there are real and terrifying beasts in our world today. There are terrifying governments who hold nuclear arms. There are terrifying kingdoms who hate Christians and seek to blow up innocent people any way that they can. There are government structures in countries around the world that seek to kill Christians by the hundreds. There are beastly economies that oppress the rich and the poor alike. There are beastly diseases that destroy the body like cancer and heart disease and terrible birth defects. There are social diseases like child slavery and poverty and hunger, war and sex trafficking. Today, there are people in this room that are facing a multitude of terrifying beasts and you are freaked out. This text speaks to us today because Daniel is confronted with something that is horrible and terrifying. He is looking at these things that seem incredibly powerful, powerful enough to take over his whole life, to take over his whole world and destroy everything that he knows and that he loves. Some of you are here this morning and you feel like you are facing a beast that you cannot defeat and you cannot destroy. Some of you are facing addictions. Some of you are are, are facing really hurtful uh, things that have happened to you in your past. Some of you come from broken homes, broken families. You've been raped, molested, abused, and these beasts are seeking to kill you and destroy you, and you do not know what to do. So yes, this text has a lot to say to us today. So the question is, How do we have courage to face the day? There are so many terrifying beasts 
in our world today. You ever, you ever turn on the news in the morning and just want to go back to bed? So with all of these terrible beasts, with all these terrible things in our world today, I mean, what courage do we have to, to set foot out of our door? Why, why not just go right back to bed, pull the covers over our head, and just pray for Jesus to come back? What What courage do we have to go out the door? What courage do we have to to tell our friends about Jesus? What courage do we have to wake up on Sunday morning and and come to church and worship God? Where is is the encouragement to do any of that? Here's the encouragement. Today we live in this awful world, but it will not always be so. All terrorists will be destroyed. All nuclear arms will go away. All anti-Christian governments will be brought to their knees. There will be no more poor. There will be no more disease. No more slavery. No more war. No more sex trafficking. All bad things will come untrue in the end. Amen? Amen. That's the courage to face the day. Now, how do I know that? Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. In the face of these horrible and terrifying beasts that Daniel is seeing, uh, he, he is shocked, he is mortified, he is terrified. And in an instant, he is transported from, from seeing all of these things. And now we, we, we see a totally different scene. That things have been flipped on their head. There's, there's no more terrifying sea and monsters coming out of them. Rather, we are now planted squarely in the middle of a courtroom. And what's going on in this courtroom? As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Who is this ancient of days? Well, this is God the Father. You see, in, in the Western culture, uh, we're obsessed with youth, aren't we? But, but in, in this culture, they're, they're not obsessed with youth. It, it, to, to say he is the ancient of days uh, means, when they say ancient, they, they mean uh, beautiful. They mean glorious. They mean magnificent. They don't mean old and smells weird, okay? So when we say ancient, we mean old and smells weird. They mean uh, majestic, beautiful, glorious. This is the ancient of days. This is God the Father sitting on his throne. Look, look at how it describes him. His clothes were white as snow. His clothes are white as snow, showing the purity of God, showing the holiness of God. Not only that, the hair of his head was like pure wool. So not only is he holy, not only is he pure, he is also wise. He, he has white hair that, that's showing his age, that's showing his wisdom. So he is pure and holy and he is wise enough to implement judgment because we see His throne was fiery flames. What do flames symbolize or indicate in the Bible? Well, it symbolizes purity as as the refiner's fire comes to purify. Uh, It also symbolizes judgment. When you see fire in the Bible, uh, that is judgment coming down. And fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from him and a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 stood before him. Look at, look at his throne again. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So, so this isn't just any old throne. This is a chariot 
fire throne, okay? Indicating that not only is God pure with his white clothes, not only is God wise with his white hair, not only has he come to deliver judgment, but he's riding in a fiery chariot throne because he is the warrior God king who comes back to slay his enemies and the enemies of his children, the saints. Now, the courage to face the day is that in the end, everything will be set right. That's the courage to face the day, is that in the end, everything will be set right. Look, look at verse 11. Listen to this. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So this king uh, is raised up among other kings and, and he is shouting out blasphemous things against God and, and the people of God. The horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As terrible as the fourth beast was, I mean, did, did you hear how Daniel described it? It was unlike any other beast. It had these claws and it was eating up everything and destroying everything in sight. And verse 11, it's like God just without batting an eye, it wasn't even difficult for the Ancient of Days to do. He just kills that fourth beast. He done, gone. It wasn't a problem for him. As terrified as he was, his problem, that the thing that was so terrifying to him was so easy for God to handle. Somebody needs that today. The thing that is so terrifying to you, the thing that is so crushing to you is easy for God to handle and take care of. Now, what that means is the attacks in Paris and Brussels and San Bernardino will be set right. It means judgment will be issued. It means the balance will be paid. And all other terrible war crimes and all other injustices will be set right in the end. That's the courage of the Christian to face the day. Not only that, listen, listen to this. If in the end, all things are set right, that means the end of bitterness in your life. Let that sink in. If God sets everything right in the end, that means you don't have to be eat up with bitterness towards the people who have wronged you because God's gonna set it right in the end. That means you can take the bitterness you've been carrying around, the bitterness you've been hanging on to, the bitterness that, that you have just coveted and held on to for so long, you can leave that here today, knowing that in the end, God's gonna set it right and you don't have to worry about it. Either it will be made right on the cross of Christ or it will be made right in eternal punishment. Now, here is what Daniel can be sure of. Salvation will come. God is over human history and will bend all things to his will. It may not happen the way that we want it to. It may not happen when we want it to, but we know in the end, salvation is coming and that gives the Christian courage to face the day, amen? Now, it only gets better. Are you guys still with me? It only gets better after this, okay? We saw the ancient of days, his, his fiery chariot throne. Now, now listen, stay with me on this. 
I saw in the night vision, and behold, I'm in verse 12. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Somebody shout amen. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, there was this figure. Uh, This figure comes on the clouds of heaven. In the Old Testament, time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, there is only one person that comes on the clouds. That is God himself. So, I saw the night visions, behold, with uh, coming on the clouds, there came one like a son of man. Now, pause right there. What have we seen? Uh, 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 like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, one beast that we couldn't even describe. We don't know what he was. Then we saw uh, this fiery dude in a white robe with, with like big white dreadlocks. Then we see this one. This character, this figure, one like a son of man, human, mortal, a person, a regular guy comes walking onto the scene in this vision of terrible, ghastly, uh, disgusting figures and creatures, a regular man walks onto the scene. He is the son of man. He's a regular guy. But there is something so different about him, isn't there? Look back at the text. The son of man, this guy comes walking onto, and he came to the ancient of days. This man is able to stand before the ancient of days. Who among us is able to stand before the ancient of days? This man is presented before him and was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He is standing before God Almighty, yet glory is given to him. Dominion is given to him. Everybody serves him in the presence of God the Father. Not only that, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, meaning this man is an eternal man, meaning he never had a beginning, he never had an end which shall not pass away in his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So unlike these other beasts, these other kings, they were given kingdoms, yet their kingdoms were destroyed and taken away. This one who is a son of man, he is an eternal man and his kingdom is not taken away. It's never destroyed and it goes on and on forever. Who could this be? Mark chapter 14, 61 through 62 Jesus on trial, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. As Jesus is on his earthly mission to save the world, he is put on trial and these high priests are are poking him, prodding him, asking him, who are you? 
Are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Go ahead, tell us. And he says clearly, plainly, emphatically, I am. That's exactly who I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Not only that, I am the one from Daniel chapter seven. I am the son of man. If you, if you have a good knowledge of, of, of your New Testament, if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will know that Jesus always, or not always, but most of the time calls himself the son of man, more than he calls himself the Christ, more than he calls himself the Messiah, more than he calls himself the shepherd, the door, the vine, any of that. Nine times out of 10, Jesus in the New Testament calls himself the son of man. Why does he do that? Because he is pointing to this particular passage and showing us that he is the one who is coming on the clouds. He is the one who is presented before the ancient of days, and he is the one that has an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now, what's happening in this particular text as Daniel is seeing this son of man, is seeing Jesus presented before the father and given thrones and dominions? What he is seeing is that Jesus has come to live the life that we should have lived, meaning he lived a perfect life of obedience. Then Jesus died for our sins in our place as a substitutionary atonement. And then he hung out for 40 days on the earth with his disciples. And then he ascended into the heavens. What Daniel is seeing here in this section, 13 and 14, is Daniel is seeing the future picture where Jesus ascended into heaven after his death, burial, resurrection Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated on the throne next to the Ancient of Days. Daniel is given a picture of that and and he writes that down for us here in this section. So for us as Christians, again, what what does this mean for us today? It means the courage to face the day is that Jesus is on his throne. Daniel saw it as a future picture of what was to come, and then it actually happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning he's still there. He's still ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father. If he can slay beasts, he can handle anything going on in your life. Oh, we had to file for bankruptcy. Jesus is on the throne. We found pot in my son's room. Well, Jesus is on the, on the throne. We found a lump that the doctors don't know what to do with. Well, Jesus is on the throne. ISIS is coming to blow us all up. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. That, that's the courage for the Christian to face the day. That's the courage for the Christian to go out into the world and obey God and live for him. That's the courage for the Christian to give his life away, to serve other people. That's the courage. What's the courage? Jesus is on the throne. And though we may face beasts, and though we may be given over to them for a time, ultimately they do not destroy us. Let's read the rest of this quickly and I'll be out of your hair. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I'm in verse 16 now. I approached one who stood there and ask him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. I then desired to know the truth about the four beasts, which were different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, the teeth and iron claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left, and about 
uh, the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up before which the three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, again, this is the angel interpreting the vision to two and four Daniel. Thus he said, as the four beasts, there shall be four kingdoms of the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Anybody feel wore out this morning? And he shall think to change the times and the law, and, he shall be, and it shall be given into his hands for a time's time and half the times. But the court shall sit in judgment, and dominion shall be given, uh, dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And, if, if that wasn't enough, and the kingdoms and dominions and the greatness of the kings under whom the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarmed, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So for us, what is the courage to face the day? The courage to face the day is verses 17 and 18 and verse 25 and 27. That's, that's the courage to face the day. Look at verse 17. These four great beasts are four great kingdoms who arose out of the earth, okay, to oppress God's people, to rise up against them. Look at verse 18. But, there it is. There's the courage for the Christian to face the day. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's why we get out of bed in the morning. That's why we tell people about Jesus. That's why we love our wives. That's why we serve our husbands. That, that, that's why we raise our children to love Jesus. Why? Because of verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever. That's the courage to face the day. Look at verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and they shall be given into his hand for a time. Like I said, anybody feel wore out? Anybody feel given over? So, so if that's the case, if you're wore out, if you're given over, why keep on going? Well, here's why. But the court shall sit in judgment. In the end, God makes it right. That's why we keep on going and his dominion shall never be taken away and be consumed. Look at 27. If that wasn't good enough, if it wasn't good enough that, that God comes back and takes care of it all and sets everything right and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to who? The people of God, the saints. That's you if you're a Christian. That's me. That means we get Jesus forever kingdom with him. We rule with him on the new heaven and the new earth forever. That, that's, that's the courage to face the day. Listen, friends, God wants us to have our feet firmly grounded in reality. Here's the reality. I'm not being a pessimist. I'm not being an optimist. I'm being a realist. Here is the truth of the matter. History is terrible and terrifying. World leaders and dictators and evil governments have been killing people by the millions 
for a very long time. Joseph Stalin killed 23 million people. Adolf Hitler, 17 million people. Mao killed 49 million people. Pol Pot killed 1.7 million people. History is terrible and terrifying. And it's not just on a global scale. There are terrible things that are happening to you and in your life. But we as Christians have courage to face the day. Why? Because Jesus is on his throne. Because Jesus will set things right. And because in the end, we inherit with him a forever kingdom. That's the courage to face the day. So friends, are you serving this king Are you his saints and will you one day rule with him? The way that we do that is by faith in him and faith in him alone. I'll close with this thought from Peter. It's 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14. I feel like it's helpful to us as we leave out of here today. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we wait for that great day when the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, as we wait for you to return and set all things right, as we wait your coming judgment, uh, that we would be diligent to be found by you without spot or without blemish and at peace. I pray for hurting people today. I pray for bitter people today. I pray that they would leave that behind, that that bitterness would be left here today. I pray that hurting people would leave with courage today, courage to face the day, knowing that you will return and set all things right, that all wrongs that have been done to us will be uh, paid for one way or another. I pray that you would give us courage to face the day, Father. I pray for that great vision for us to see it again. God, we look forward to seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds to set up His forever kingdom where we will be ushered in to serve and rule with Him. We love you, God. Minister these things to our heart. Minister this word deep into our souls. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.